James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Glad you're here. You look great. That's half the battle. That's what my mom always says. Um, it's getting cold outside. The days of summer and golf are probably behind us. So uh, the scripture teaches us to lament and to grieve. Uh, so I'm doing that for some personal reasons. Uh, we just skip fall here in Columbia. I'm from Colorado, and we actually have four seasons, and it's great. But uh, we're just going right from summer to winter. So it's getting cold. It's cold in here. Um, but hang with us. Uh, Anyways, my name's Cam. Really glad to be with you this morning. Uh, I serve on the leadership team here and uh, come up here and talk every once in a while. And we have been in the book of James for the past, I don't even know how many weeks, 10, 11 weeks. And we are closing her down today as we transition into our next series. So we finished the book, James chapter 5. And uh, I don't know if you've picked up on James's tone at all, or if you picked up on who James is throughout the series, but uh, I have. And uh, James just isn't a guy I think I'd want to hang out with very much, to be honest. Uh, he's a guy who has lots of advice and lots of wisdom, but his tone is just kind of like, it's a little pointed, you know, like not, 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 not very gentle, not very kind, but he just kind of tells us how it is. Um, so I imagine James, when I, when I imagine who James is, uh, just a guy who was like the brother of Jesus and is just kind of grumpy that he missed it all of Jesus's life and just now is kind of this bitter dude who's telling us how we should live. Um, so anyways, you can pick up on some of his tone here as we read, but I'm going to pray first as we get into it. Uh, Father, we're so thankful just for your presence, uh, even as that scripture that we read in Galatians, that you uh, have not left us alone, but that you've sent your spirit. And uh, we need more than just information or mere words this morning. We need uh, a touch from your Holy Spirit. We need uh, your presence. We need to encounter you this morning. So would you use your word and uh, just use this space that we try to create for you to meet us. Uh, I know we're distracted and we have so many other things in our minds and in our hearts going on, but just for a moment, would you just calm us enough to not miss you, but to just uh, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts just to receive uh, from your spirit and your word this morning. So we love you and we offer you these moments in Jesus' name. Amen. So, James and his tone, we can kind of pick up on it. And it's almost like following Jesus is pretty easy. And I'm about to talk about prayer and prayer is really easy, right? Like on the surface, he says, if you're suffering, if you're having any hardship in your life, you know what you should do? Just pray. Not that hard. Uh, things are going really well in your life. Celebrate God. Not that hard. Uh, if you have some kind of sickness or illness, 
Just have people anoint you with oil and pray for you, and you know, you probably get healed. It's not that hard. Uh, if you have like some kind of shame and regret and you need to confess some sin, confess your sin to a brother and pray. It's not that hard. Really, really simple, really direct. Uh, if we could, this morning, we could just pray, close it down, shut the Bible, say, let's go home. It's easy. Praying is easy. But we know the reality that it's not that easy. On the simple surface, prayer is just funneling everything you're experiencing, everything in your circumstances, everything in your life, and directing it upward to God. That's all prayer is. And that's what James is teaching us. He's saying everything you're experiencing, just direct it up to God. Take it down here and direct it up there. It's, it's, it's these simple charges that Paul would say to the church in Philippi, right? He said, hey, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. Boom, there you go. Or this other easy command that he gives the church in Thessalonica, right? He says, hey, just like pray without ceasing. Just like pray and like never stop praying and life will be good. And I think at the heart, like we know that's kind of true. We know, we know people who pray a lot or we know in our own lives, like when I'm praying, my life tends to be a little bit better. Or I see people who tend to, I think this guy prays a lot and he just seems happier or joyful or a little bit more uh, patient or peaceful, a little non-anxious, less anxious presence. And I think we end up... Uh, <laughs> kind of like this lady I saw the other day when I was driving on Scott Boulevard. Um, as I was passing by, I, I, I'm just kind of imagining, I, I couldn't tell exactly, but she was out on a run and uh, it looked like she kind of had all the swag, like the Lulu, uh, the Brooks sneakers, like the nice t-shirt, whatever. And she had her headphones on and she was just ready to go. Except for she was in the middle of the intersection, like on the grass. And I was kind of like, I, I just put myself in, in her head and I'm thinking, you know, running sounds great. Like, I, the people I know who run, like, they're pretty fit, they're pretty healthy, uh, they seem to be happier. Um, I think I'm going to go on a run. Except for then she finds herself on the grass, dodging mole holes, if that's a thing, and trees, and there's cars on both your side, and she said, hey, this is a little bit more complicated than I thought. And I think that's kind of how we are with prayer, right? Like, I, I, it sounds like a great idea, but my lived experience is just not that. It's really, really hard. And I think it's because prayer is a good idea on the surface, but underneath it, there are deeper reasons of why it's hard, that it's complex. And prayer tends to be complex because prayer is all about relationship. And if you've been in any kind of relationship or friendship, you know that relationships are complex, that the step-by-step process that people tell you, they don't work in relationships and they don't work in prayer. So underneath our struggle to pray, is this deep brokenness in our relationship with God. And even deeper than that is this broken view of who we see God to be. How do we see God and who is he when we actually think about who we believe him to be? Nancy Mayers says this quote, she says, who one believes God to be is most accurately revealed, not in any credo, but in the way one speaks to God when no one is listening. Said another way, Who you really believe God to be isn't in what you say about God, but it's in how you talk to him in private. I don't know if you noticed this past week, uh, some of you are more observant and and friendly, and uh, I had a mustache the past couple weeks. Uh, I just kind of went for it. I don't know why. I just went for the mustache, trying to age myself a little bit, claps for the mustache. Um, But what was happening in public was my wife was really just outing me on the mustache. This thing is ugly. It doesn't need to shave it. It's so gross. Trying to get all these people on her side and kind of, kind of having this outward appearance that she hates the mustache, right? 
But in private? <laughs> Let me tell you what she was, I can't tell you what she was saying in private. But in private, she was telling me, babe, I love your mustache. And she would tell me, I like it. I can't, I can't tell everyone that I like it because that's just weird. But I love your mustache. So what did Kayla actually think about my mustache? She loved it, right? And why? Because, because what you really believe isn't how you talk about something in public, but it's how you talk to that person in private. And the same thing is true about God. And the same thing is true about prayer. Because the object of prayer isn't prayer. You don't actually grow in prayer by even reading the books about prayer or following these step-by-step processes of prayer, but you grow in prayer as you fall in love with God. As you see him for who he actually is, this is the transforming power, the prayer. So verse 13, right? It says, are any of you suffering? Then pray. And on the surface, it's really, really simple. But the deeper question here is, do you see God as the person who can meet your needs, as the one who wants to meet your needs. And everyone has experienced this, right? Like it's 2020. Like everyone has experienced some kind of suffering, some kind of enduring, some kind of struggle, right? Like just the, the COVID, the, the epidemic, the racial and ethnic tensions in our, in our culture, everyone has experienced this in some way, whether it's trying to be home with your kids all the time, whether it's job loss or uh, even just your salary being cut down, everybody has experienced some kind of collective struggle that we've been in this moment together. And in some ways, it seems like a setup. Because I mean, I, mean, I hear this in every single testimony, right? Like nobody's, nobody's testimony comes up here and is like, you know, life was really good. Everything was awesome. I was killing it. And I was thinking, you know, what could make this a little bit better? Jesus, I think I'm going to try him out. Like that's never the testimony, right? Everybody's testimony is I was broken and struggling and I was, became more and more aware of my need in life. And God met me. I mean, that's my story. I, 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 was, I was playing basketball at a school in Colorado, UNC. Most of the time, I just leave it at UNC and just kind of let the people interpret how they may. But University of Northern Colorado, we can just keep that under wraps. Uh, but I, I had this dream as a kid, right? Like I knew I was never going to play high major, whatever. I had this dream to be, I'm going to take this little mid-major school and we're going to go on a run in the tournament. This is, this is the dream I had since I was like 12 years old. And I'm a junior in college, and everything is kind of starting to come together for me. Like, I I was leading scorer the year before, and I'm coming into this moment. Played four games and trying to be humble, but I was hooping. Like, I was was just playing good, and everything was falling into place. Practice before my fifth game, I, I get a concussion, and everything changed. I had headaches. My mind was foggy. I couldn't think straight for, like, months at a time. I had to cheat my way through school. Because uh, I just couldn't figure it out. That was a joke. Sorry. Um, <laughs> not really. Uh, until finally I had to hang him up. Like I just had to be done playing. And this dream that I thought I had was gone. And I was hurting and I was struggling. And, and, and I felt these feelings in my life of just sadness and grief and, and, and just this deep despair that I'd never felt before. And that's where God met me. Because God loves to meet us in our brokenness, that in my dark apartment, literally dark, because they tell you to turn the lights off, in my dark apartment, God met me, and I learned how to pray because I knew I needed to pray. And we've all experienced that. Like, there's moments like prayer is a good idea, and then there's this moment when I got nothing else but to pray. And God leads us in those places so he can reveal more of himself. I love how Jesus puts it in the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, and this is, this is from the Message Translation, but he says this, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. Because with less of you, there's more of God and his rule. 
You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. You're blessed when things aren't going well because that's where God meets you. One of the biggest illusions in Christianity is that God draws near to us in our giftings and our strengths and our talents when it's actually the opposite. And I feel this almost every time I preach or do any kind of ministry where I'm teaching because it has this way of like exposing me for who I really am. And almost every time I feel the Spirit speak into my insecurities and say, now okay, God's power is made perfect in your weaknesses, not in your strengths. And this is where prayer begins. This is where it all starts because this is who God is. He draws near to the brokenhearted. Jesus was full of compassion and just couldn't help himself of who he would run to in his life and his ministry. He runs to the weak. He runs to the helpless and to the hurting. So even right now, if you're struggling and you're just feeling weak and you're feeling helpless, you are in the perfect spot to learn how to pray. You are in the perfect spot to be ministered to by Jesus and the helper, the Holy Spirit, as he invites you deeper into prayer. All right, well, what about the second one? Are, are, are you cheerful? Sing praise. Really simple. But the underlying question on this one is, do you see God as the most cheerful one? Do you see God as the most cheerful? Like am I, I'm singing praise to the one who's cheerier than I am, who's happier than I am. Dallas Willard says it this way, a joyous God fills the universe. Joy is the ultimate word describing God and his world. Creation itself was an act of joy, of delight in the goodness of what was done. It is precisely because God is like this and because we can know that he's like this, that a life of joy is even possible. Especially when we talk about prayer, we say things like, let's just seek the face of God, which is amazing and profound. But when you really imagine God's face, what does it look like? When you really think about the face of God, what, what's his countenance? What's his general disposition? What, what, is, what is his mood and his feelings towards you? See, I think we need a, a deeper theology of the goodness of God, that the story of everything, it starts with goodness, that God creates out of an overflow of his goodness and his joy and his love and his pleasure, the happiness and the delight of God. But not only that, do we see God as the ultimate gift giver? Do we see him as the one that has given us everything that we have has been a gift from God? And he's not the, he's not the one that says, hey, here's these headphones, but don't lose them. Take care of them. Make sure you do this exactly the right way. No, he, he, he gives us out of the overflow of who he is and out of the overflow of his own generosity. James 1 says this, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So even the smallest victories and wins throughout the day can be funneled in, into the generous gift of the giving God who gave them to us. God loves to give. In 2 Corinthians, he, he gives this illustration as, as we're to mirror him by being cheerful givers. And this word cheerful it's translated hilarious, as in hilarious, as in like, I'm just so giggly and happy and just laughing all the time at how much I'm just giving away. That's the picture of God, that he's a hilarious giver. He just laughs at how much he just is generous in giving. Luke chapter 11 says, you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. You evil fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. If, if, they ask for, if they ask for a burger, you're not going to put a snake on their plate. You would never do that. How much more, how much more would your Father in heaven love to give gifts to those whom he calls his children? God loves to give. 
So we celebrate, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we're caught up in a vision of God that is cheerful and happy and joyous and love to give out of the overflow of who he is. Cool. Okay, what about this third one, though? You got me, okay? I'm struggling. Go to God. I'm happy. Go to God. But this, this, this third one gets a little bit weirder. Are you sick? Go to the elders. Cool. Have people pray for you. And have them anoint you with oil and pray over you. Um, all the doTERRA people in the house said amen. That's such a bad joke. Um, doTERRA? Nobody? Golly. Uh, <laughs> but there's something even deeper here, right? And we just prayed about this. There's a deeper question here. Who do we have to believe God to be in order to actually ask him to heal? We have to actually believe that God is fundamentally a healer. That God actually responds to the prayers of his people. That God isn't just the compassionate God who meets us and sits with us in our brokenness, but he actually has the power to transform and change the circumstance that we're in. This picture of oil, it's, it's not just meant for us to spend buku bucks to try to get these oils on us that might make us feel better, although I am kind of pro doTERRA. The lavender, the lemon in the diffuser, it smells amazing. I love it. But there's something far, far deeper here. It was meant to be a representative. In this context, it was a representative of the Holy Spirit. It was a picture for the people saying that as we, as we anoint you, as we put oil on you, it's this picture to say, hey, we're not just kind of like offering up empty prayers here and kind of doing the right thing, but we are acknowledging and engaging our imagination to say, hey, the Holy Spirit is here, that we pray with power, that, that, that there's this power that, that raised Jesus from the dead that now lives inside of us and then flows through us. And James, he, he tethers this, this section to, to this thing that he calls the prayer of faith. So, so let me explain prayer of faith. Let me explain what that's not, okay? A prayer of faith is not me just trying to muster up all this kind of like white knuckle, let's have faith, all caps, all bold, yell it out, emotional frenzy. That's not necessarily what he means, okay? When he talks about faith, one of my favorite stories that Jesus, when he, when he marvels at someone's actual faith, uh, Jesus is uh, basically going from one place to another, and he has this Roman official who comes up to him. And he's like, hey, uh, you're the Jesus guy, right? He's like, yeah. Um, and this Roman official, he, he didn't grow up reading the Torah. He didn't grow up reading any of these things. It's a cross-cultural interaction. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, look, I'm, a, I'm an official. I, I understand how authority works. Okay? I, I tell my guy to go from over here to over there. And you know what he does? He goes from over here to over there. And he says, so if you actually are who you say you are and you have this power, it'd be an easy thing for you to do to heal my servant. So would you do that? And Jesus, with a, with a bizarre turn of events, says, That's, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. At this simple thing, because, because faith is not the object of faith, right? That it's not about the amount of faith that we have, but it's who we put our faith in. It's trusting that Jesus actually can do what he said he's going to do. So faith isn't about us trying to muster up belief, but it's about what you believe in, and it's why it always goes back to how you see God. Ephesians 3.20 says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than, we, than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. And this is why we need our Bibles, right? Not, not to give some kind of cool, cute quote before a motivational speech, but to remind our anxious and tired and weary hearts that God is able that he actually can do more than I've ever thought of or dreamed of. This is the God that the Bible talks about more than we ask. God has power to actually change, and he actually responds to the prayers of his people.
Cool. Go to, can, go, go to God when I'm sad. Go to God when I'm uh, really happy. If I need healing, God can do it. Uh, but, but this fourth one, I don't know if I get. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. So, so you, want me, you want me to confess my sins, my own private life and junk to someone else and to God. Why, why can't I just do that to God is, is my first instinct, right? And I read this quote this week that made me, that just had me really thinking. Uh, this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writes in his book, Life Together, and, and he kind of proposes this question. Why, why would we feel more comfortable just privately confessing our sins to God, who is holy and perfect and true, and in him there is no darkness at all? Why would we feel more comfortable going over to him as opposed to confessing my junk and my sin to another brother or another sister who has all kinds of of their own sin. And I know that. I know they're broken. I know God is not. So why do I feel more comfortable here? And he, and he proposes this, this thought just to say, I wonder if we're deceiving ourselves with our confessions of sin to God. And really, we're just kind of offloading them into space to try to kind of clear our conscience or make ourselves feel better just for a little bit. And whether we haven't been confessing our sins to him, but just to ourselves. And we hear that message sometimes, right? Like, man, you know you're forgiven. You just need to forgive yourself. As in the as if like the forgiveness of my, like if I could just forgive myself, then everything would be fine. As opposed to a holy and perfect God and actually accepting and receiving his forgiveness. And then he concludes with this. Who can give us this certainty that in the confession and forgiveness of our sins, we are not dealing with ourselves, but with the living God? God gives us this certainty through our brother or our sister. Our brother or our sister, they break the circle of self-deception. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he's no longer alone with himself. And he experiences the presence of God and his forgiveness through the other person. So look, shame, shame is real. Shame is debilitating. Shame is that feeling when it just it feels like you can't move and every muscle in your body gets tight and you just feel so aware of who you actually are. When you're so aware of your own insecurities and faults and failures and brokenness that you feel like you can't even move. And Jesus came to take this shame. Jesus came that we might no longer be enslaved to our shame. He, he's seen you in your darkest moments. He's seen you when no one else has seen you. He's seen those thoughts when no one else has seen those thoughts in the, in the private place of your own heart that you, that you have never let out to anybody else. And he still chose you and loved you and welcomes you into a relationship with himself. He became that shame on, this, on the cross so that now we might live and walk in freedom with no more shame. But I wonder if a lot of us are still living in and operating out of shame because we've never truly confessed, or maybe just like a general confession, you know, we kind of go around and we're like, you know, I'm struggling. It's hard right now. Uh, my wife and, and my sister-in-law, they, they talk about their youth group, which I never knew, but they would, they would do this thing called unspoken. Does anybody know an unspoken prayer? Yo, that is hilarious. That is so funny. They'd go around and be like, hey, what do you need prayer for? And they'd just be like, unspoken. I just, I, think, I just think that's funny. 15-year-old boy, like, saying unspoken prayer requests, like, we know, bro. Like, we know. We know what it is. I just think that's hilarious. But to shortchange the confession is to shortchange the healing. And the great, one of the great enemies of our prayer life is shame. But Psalm 34, 5 says this, those who look to God are radiant. 
that when you actually come to God, your, your face changes and you become radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. So as we confess our sins one to another, we actually get to experience the healing power of the gospel. And it moves from this thing that I just mentally ascribe to, to say, yeah, I know Jesus died on the cross to my sins, for my sins, but then it pushes down into our heart to something that we actually believe and we can actually live out of. So as we confess our sins and pray, we actually get to walk in freedom and forgiveness. So who you actually believe God to be? Because God wants to transform your prayer life as he transforms how you actually see him and who you actually believe him to be. Because this is where prayer begins. And there's this flow that God wants to do where he begins to transform your inner prayer life and how you operate in the private place with God and in your hidden life with him. And then it turns into an outward prayer. And this is how James flows this whole thing, right? He, he starts with how God can meet your needs. And then he ends with how God can meet the needs of others through your prayers. And this is often described in the scriptures as intercession. So intercession might sound like a super spiritual word, but, but what intercession literally means is just to stand in the gap. I've heard it said at its core, intercession is a response to the gap separating God and man or heaven and earth. In intercession, we contend for God to move on someone else's behalf. And James, he chooses to use Elijah to illustrate his point. And well, Elijah is, uh, he's a dramatic character in the scriptures, to say the least. I, I don't know if you've read much about Elijah, but, but Elijah has this really famous two chapters in, in 1 Kings 17 and then 18. And, and here's what happens. Uh, one, he's just so full of faith and passion that he, uh, he comes up to these people. He, he's the only one still worshiping uh, the one true God, Yahweh. And then there's all these other people who are worshiping this, this God, Baal. And he basically comes into this like God smackdown and is like, well, this is what we're going to do. You make an altar, I'm going to make an altar. You pray for your God to bring fire down on your altar, and I'm going to pray for my God to bring fire down on my altar. Let's go. Talk about full of faith, right? And he comes up to the altars. Uh, all these people, they, they pray. He kind of mocks them a little bit too. They pray for their God, Baal, to bring fire. It doesn't come. He's like, all right, try again. Do it again. They pray again. No fire. He says, go, go ahead. Try one more time. They do it again. It's like 450-something people here praying. Nothing. Elijah opens up his mouth and says, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would you bring fire down here? And fire falls on the altar and everybody around bows their head to God and they begin to turn and worship the one true God, Yahweh. Awesome, amazing moment. Turn the page, one page over. Elijah, same guy, just saw God, just like in the face of all these people, sees God bring fire. One page later, he's running away from this queen and he's in this cave and he's literally like one page and he's saying, God, take my life. I can't do it anymore. I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. No more ministry. I'm doubting it. You're not real. I don't know what's going on. Everything, I'm out. If you read the story, God tells him, hey, why don't you just grab a bite to eat, take a nap, and you're going to be okay. But I wonder if how we see people in the scriptures totally affects the way that we pray. Because when I hear Elijah, I hear 1 Kings 17, Elijah, bring fire down, Lord. And I'm like, that's not me. But then I turn the page and I read 1 Kings 18, Elijah, afraid, full of fear, full of doubt insecure. And I'm like, that one I can relate to. I think we're all the same. Dallas Willard says this, we must think of ourselves as capable of having the same kinds of experiences as Elijah did. And isn't that what he says? He says, a man with nature, just like ours. Like he's just like you. He's just like me. There are no uh, spiritual superheroes in the scriptures. It's not full of all stars, but it's full of people who are broken and weak and afraid, but would intercede and trust God, and, and ask him to move on behalf 
of others. Intercession is all about relationship. It's all about how we see God. And it's why James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Righteousness, Jeremy talked about this earlier in the series, but righteousness is the, is the continuity of our inward life and our outward life. It's our, both our ability to love God and our neighbor. That it's not just to be privately loving God, but it's also to be publicly loving my neighbor. Intercession is where these two things intersect. Where we both love God and our neighbor, it's how we love our neighbor. It's to see the, the great need of the world and ask the one who actually has the resources to meet that need, to meet the need. It's where these two things intersect. Intercession is where we steward our own intimacy with God on behalf of other people. And this is the vision of our church. This is who we want to be. We want to be a bunch of normal people who, who have our own brokenness and insecurity and just ask God to move. That we realize we're nothing special aside from the power and the spirit of God. There's this, uh, there's this uh, evangelistic thing out of England called Alpha um, and they have this kind of whole program that kind of invites people to, to kind of just who are curious spiritually to kind of encounter God, um, said, said, said bluntly and plainly. But they have this quote for in their, within their whole curriculum. And it says this, our program is bound to fail unless God shows up. That, that, that we're not setting it up in a way that, man, this might work with or without God. They say they've set their thing up in a way that it's bound to fail unless God shows up. I say that is what we want to be as a church, that our church is bound to fail unless prayer actually works, that we're building this entire thing on prayer. And if, which is just a a horrible idea from like a logistic standpoint, right? Like if it's just like, man, uh, we're just going to kind of sit here and pray and hope that God moves. That will not work unless God is real and his power and his spirit are active and alive. This is who we want to be. We want our church to be, this is going to fail unless God works and moves. So take your suffering to him in prayer. Take your joys and your happiness and all the goodness that's in your life and just celebrate God because he is the most cheerful one. Take your brokenness to him in prayer. Confess your sins in prayer because prayer is the powerful and effective way, not because of the strength that we have, or the faith that we have, but because of the strength of who we're praying to. So as I close, I just want to read from from Hebrews chapter four. It says this, "Let, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So we do all of this in prayer not because of anything that we've done, not because of anything that we've earned or that we've strived, or we don't come to God bold and confident on our own strength, our own merit, but we come because Jesus is our pathway. He's the doorway to God's presence. The prayer we come in with confidence, that as we're about to take communion in a second, as we celebrate the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, we come into God's presence because Jesus broke his body for us, that he took our sin on behalf of us and that he shed his blood to go before us so that now we might enter into God's presence with confidence. So um, I I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know what you're thinking right now, but but every week here at Trinity, uh, what we do is we take communion. 
And we do this as a remembrance of what Jesus has done. So if you, if you would consider yourself to be following Jesus right now, we, we would ask you to participate with us. But if you're on the fence, if you're kind of like, man, I don't know where I'm at about this whole God thing, I would, I would just ask you to contemplate, just to think, where am I with God? Where am I? And we'd love for you to receive the mercy and the grace of Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then you can go back and grab the, grab the stuff and bring it back to your uh, chairs, and we'll take communion together after the song.